We'll go ahead and get started here. So uh, there are some handouts available. Uh, we are not, so the handouts are not uh, the same as they've normally been in the sense that we're not working our way through this handout today. Um, this handout I put together, um, actually I put to together this morning, so I probably could have done a better job if I put more thought into it, but it's not directly related to, uh, it is directly related. It's not what we're talking about today in the sense that we're not going to go through this line by line. Um, I thought, though, it would be helpful to give it to you as kind of a review, you can go through it on your own, about some of the key passages related to the doctrines of grace, right? Um, so there certainly are, we've, we've went over a lot more than these passages, uh, but it's been over a period of weeks. So I've tried to kind of summarize it onto one page, front and back, of you know, some of the most uh, clear verses. I do think, again, I did it this morning, so there may be some that are even more clear that um, just didn't come to mind as I was working through it. But I think you'll find it uh, a helpful review. And so it's divided up by those five different um, kind of systematic categories that we've talked about. Um, so, and what we're talking about is, you know, we talk about doctrines of grace. We're, we're talking about how do we answer the question, um, how is a person saved? How, how does a person come to be right, in a right standing with God? Um, and so these are different, uh, so it's, in some sense it's kind of, syst it's just systematic theology, right? We're working through how do we understand answers to these different questions that come up. Um, so we have to understand our position, that's radical depravity, um, which means at our root we are resistant to God, we are hostile towards God, and so you can see some of those things there. Um, Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot um, talked about unconditional election, that God elects to save individuals. Now, remember, we also talked about this um, at another um, um, uh, earlier phases several times, and one of the things we pointed out is um, the word election, the word predestination, they're in the Bible, right? So no one, no one is disputing that, unless you just are brand new to this and you don't know the Bible at all, and that's fine, but now you know it's in the Bible, right? The words are there. The question is, what do they mean, right? That's what we have to talk about. And so, um, but I, I do think we see that in passages like Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, how do we know all things are going to work together for good? What, what is the basis of that promise, right? And then he goes through this chain, this unbreakable chain of the fact that we have been redeemed. And this is how redemption happened. For, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I think one of the key points in there too is the fact that those he called are justified. Because you might read that and you might say, well, for no just means he looked down the quarter of time, he saw who's going to believe and he chose them. You still are going to have a problem though with this chain if you're not going the doctrines of grace way we've been describing it. Because how is it that those he called necessarily are the same as those who are justified? Right? Calling requires that they're justified in this passage. That's what I'm saying. It's not they're called and then they some choose and some don't. Right? Okay. Um, definite atonement. Um, we're going to spend some time looking at that today a little bit more, so I won't read those passages um, right now. Um, irresistible grace. Uh, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Will come to me, right? Guaranteed will come. Um, preservation and perseverance of the saints. We see that both those things are true. And uh, we persevere because God preserves us. 
And so you can see, um, we're going to look at John 10 a little bit today. Um, Romans 8, right? You see that at the bottom there? Nothing is going to be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And all these things, we are more than conquerors. Um, no one's going to separate us from the love of Christ. So uh, those are some of the passages. So I just did that by way of review. That's all that is. I just wanted to give you some review, keep those things in front of you. Um, so we're doing some, uh, we had some questions, so I'm going to do some answers today. Uh, Doug is going to, Lord willing, do more questions and answers stuff because we have more questions. Uh, not this coming Sunday. Uh, I think the, uh, we're going to have some missionaries here. They're going to speak during Sunday school. But the following Sunday after that, he's going to answer some more of them. So, um, Anyway, so thanks for sending in questions, those who did that, and you still could send in more. Send in your really hard ones for Doug. Um, that'd be great. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, so in some ways, it's going to be a little bit, well, we, originally, we were thinking we were going to do it all in one setting. We are going to do it all today. So we kind of divided it up based on who taught what sessions. So Doug was going to do things like related to total depravity, related to predestination and election. Um, so... You may, it may seem a little bit strange because you would think we'd start with questions related to those and work our way down. But that's not what we're going to do. We're going to start with some other things kind of further down the line. Um, some of you, you don't care about that at all. That's fine. I just, some of you, you're, you're going to be bothered by that. You're going to be wondering why we didn't start earlier. Um, so I just want you to know, originally we were going to do them all today, and that's how we divided them up. I'm doing today, not Doug. So it just is what it is, okay? That's where we're at. So we're going to start with some questions uh, related to divine determinism. Let me uh, pray real quick for us, and then we'll jump into that. God, we are grateful uh, for a new day. We're so thankful to be able to gather to worship um, you and to do that with your people, to do it together and um, to encourage one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. And um, I pray that you'd enable us to do that. I pray even as we study your word this morning that you would help us to um, strive to think your thoughts uh, that we see in your word. And... Um, Help us to just uh, have the humility we need as we grow in these things. Um, God, we certainly recognize there are things we um, don't understand about the way you, you do things, and uh, that's not surprising to us. It's humbling, but it's not surprising. We know that you are all-knowing. You are infinite in all your ways, and so we humbly submit to you. Um, but we do want to think uh, biblically. We want to think hard about the things you have revealed to us, you have given to us, so that we might um, mature, we might grow. In, in all of all these ways. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one more thing before I jump into these questions. Uh, let me just point out again, we recognize, you know, not everyone is going to hold the exact same view on how these doctrines related to our salvation work out, right? Um, I'm thankful that we're in a church that we believe the Bible, and we always go to the Bible to answer our questions. And we, we always start there before we try to do philosophy. I think philosophy is helpful but I think it has to flow from what do we understand the scriptures to say rather than here's my philosophy, now I'm going to go ahead and ignore scriptures or jam scriptures in or do this or that, right? Um, so I'm going to go through and answer these about um, because th this is in the what we teach document of our church that we teach the doctrines of grace this way. You can be a member of our church and not hold it exactly this way. In other words, you can have a more Arminian way of understanding this. Um, we do have a statement of faith, though, that tells us, you know, we have to have orthodox Christianity, so it's not universalism, right? And, I, and so, I, so when I'm answering these questions, I'm not saying if you hold a different view, I'm accusing you of being a universalist. or that, that is not what is going on, right? We can still disagree over these things. Now, I teach these things, and we teach these things because we're convinced when we look at Scripture in, in our minds that this is what I see, right? Um, so, and I'm not claiming that I have all the answers. I'm not claiming that I understand every single passage of Scripture. This, there are certainly complex passages related to these issues, okay? So that's my disclaimer. 
Uh, first question was about uh, that I'm going to go over was related to divine determinism. Do you remember in session seven? Oh, and by the way, these are online. If you ever want to go back and listen to one of these sessions, if you missed one, they're on the um, in the sermon section. Divine determinism, and we covered that in session seven, and we were trying to fit together a little bit in our understanding. How do we understand God's absolute sovereignty, control over all things, and uh, how do we understand that being compatible with human responsibility and human freedom? Um, which would also mean, how, how are people culpable, guilty before God, if God is sovereign, right? That's kind of what one of the things we were trying to answer. So we spent time going through that. So I'm not going to rehash all that, but we spent time looking at passages that show us that God is completely sovereign and we are completely responsible for our rebellion, okay? Um, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you want to hear more about those questions. But we got a question, uh, Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 19. It's a good question out of Jeremiah 19. <clears throat> so it's going to be kind of sort of in the middle of your Bible. You're going to, it's after Psalms. Jeremiah 19. All right. And this is what you want to do. When you read the Bible, I mean, you want to ask questions, right? Uh, not like in a, um, you know, like it's a virtue to doubt. I'm saying ask questions like, oh, I don't understand that. What does that mean, right? That's, that's what we, we want to do. Okay, so Jeremiah 19, 4 through 5. Jeremiah is speaking, as he's a prophet, he's speaking to God's rebellious people, right? Telling them, hey, you violated the covenant, you need to repent. Um, they're engaged in idol worship, and even as part of their idol worship, sacrificing children to their gods, okay? This is what it says in Jeremiah 19, 4 and 5. The people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to, to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. And so the question is, what does it mean when we talk about nor did it come into my mind? Does this contradict God's absolute sovereignty? Is that, does, this, does that phrase contradict God's absolute sovereignty, nor did it come into my mind? Um, okay, so I don't, I don't think it does, and here's, here's my reasoning. Number one is, if we're going to say this undercuts divine determinism, divine sovereignty, God is sovereign over everything, we, we're, you actually, if you prove that, you've actually proved more than you probably intended to prove. You, you're claiming too much, because what, what else do you have to dispense of if that's literally what this passage means. Omniscience, right? Right? Now, so, some people do go down that road. You've, maybe you've heard of open theism before. That, that started as, as kind of in a form of Arminianism and slid down a path towards, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying Arminians hold this view. They don't, but, I, but it's, they started there, and these people, they, they kept working through questions in a way that they kept denying one thing after another until they ended up denying God can't know everything. Because, and we're going to talk about this in a second, if God knows everything, then he has to be sovereign. And I'm going to explain that more in a second. Um, but the issue, because if it, if it didn't come into his mind, then that means he didn't know it, if, if we're taking it to mean that literally, exactly. So, um, so all, or, all Orthodox Christians, I would say Arminians as well, I think they're Orthodox Christians, uh, they would agree that this is not a literal statement. That's my first point. All Orthodox Christians would agree that this is not a literal statement. Instead, it's a figure of speech. And yes, the Bible uses figures of speech. Now, we don't want to engage in special pleading where every time something comes up we don't like, we just call it a figure of speech. You have to have a reason to call it a figure of speech, right? Um, 
but nor did it come into my mind. I mean, you could see how it's a figure of speech. I mean, even as a parent, you could think about saying that to your kids, right? What were you thinking? I, I, that's not what I told you to do. That didn't even come into my mind. What are you doing, right? Um, now, the question is, what does it mean here when it's talking about God? Um, and I don't think it can mean that he isn't sovereign because the context is riddled with statements of God's sovereignty. Look at the context. Look at verse, beginning verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle because the people have forsaken me. Therefore, so uh, let's see, this is verse 6 now. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Okay, so first of all, we, said, we saw at the beginning, I am bringing disaster. Those, those are action sovereign words, right? I'm bringing it, I'm doing it. So then we get down, the Lord is declaring what he's about to do. And the question is, how is it that he can declare exactly what's going to happen? Is it just because he knows it or is it because he's going to make it happen? declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called, and he goes on and lists, it's going to have a different name. It'll be called the Valley of Slaughter, verse 7. And in this place, I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem and will cause their people to fall by the sword. Uh, looking a little further, I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air. Verse 8, and I will make this city a horror. Verse 9, and I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. Uh, verse 11 uh, Lord of hosts says, so will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel. Verse 12, thus will I do to this place, declares the Lord. Verse 15, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all this disaster that I have pronounced against it. So I think the whole context is God knows because God is sovereign. In other words, God is sovereignly bringing this disaster on his people, because of their rebellion. And so he prophesies it because he has commanded it. God has ordained it. So what does the figure of speech mean then? We still have to answer that question. Verse 9, or sorry, verse 5. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. So which I did not command or decree shed some light, I think, on the meaning of that second phrase. I think what is happening here is he's saying, not only did I not command it, I did not tell you to do it. It was the furthest thing from my mind. This is the complete opposite of what you are to do. I mean, think about like Deuteronomy 6, what parents are supposed to do for their children. This was part of the covenant, right? You're supposed to instruct your children, raise them up in God's ways. And here you are sacrificing your children to God. I think that's kind of what he's getting at here. Not only did I not command it, I didn't say to do it, it was the furthest thing from my mind. It is the complete opposite of what I told you to do. I think that is the way we should take that figure of speech. So it's a really good question. That's my answer to it. I'm not saying there aren't other answers, uh, maybe even better answers. Yeah? Uh, it's not his purposeful consideration. Right. Yep. Uh, as, as opposed to talking about what you may know about. That's right. Yep. So he's saying this, is, this was not my intent, my purposeful uh, consideration for what you were going to do. That's right. Um, okay, next, uh, what about the times we see God giving people choices to repent and be forgiven or keep on and be judged? Are these pseudo choices? Um, follow-up connection to that we could say, we could also add because this is a big deal because is God morally responsible for those who face judgment? Um, so we do have a general call to repent in the Bible, right? I mean, we see that. Um, Mark 1, repent 
and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, we, we see in the book of Acts calls to repent. Um, so we see, we see it over and over again. In other words, it's not just the elect who are commanded to repent. That's true. We see that in the scripture. Um, so one thing is, you know, why do we have those commands? Well, because God is God and we must worship him or we're wrong. God will command us to do what is right, right? He, he's telling us, this is what you need to do. You need to repent and believe. And that is true. Um, now we have to ask the question though, why do people not obey this command? Um, this kind of gets more to the, you know, is, is this um, a pseudo choice? Is it something where we are, we are not morally responsible for our unbelief? Uh, well, you know, if God forced people to continue in unbelief, right? Like you had people who were saying, Lord, I really, I want to enter your kingdom um, you, because you are the one true God and you're bringing judgment on this world and you are the most glorious person in the universe. I want to believe in you. And God says, no, you are consigned to hell, right? Um, I think we'd have a little bit more of a problem um, to, to work out here, but I don't think that's the picture we see in the scripture. Um, I, I think what we've seen, and this kind of goes with that divine determinism lesson, so you can go back and listen to that some more maybe. Um, we, we see we have to define what is human freedom. I and mean, I think what we see happening is we are free to do what we most want to do. That's true, right? Um, and, and so when we continue in our rebellion, we're doing exactly what we most want to do. We are rebelling against God. Um, we love the darkness. Look at uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. 2 Thessalonians 2, <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. I think this is one place we kind of get a glimpse into this. The coming of the lawless one is by, this is verse nine, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So we're, we're talking about right now, those who are perishing, right? Because, here, here's why they continue to be deceived um, and because they are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Who is responsible for their perishing? They are. Why? Because they have a love issue. They're loving. That, in other words, it's not like, oh, I just, oh man, I hate, I hate sin because it defiles the glory of God and God is the best person in the universe. That's not what's going on. It's a, I love my sin. Now that can look religious, right? I mean, you could be very religious and still not love the one true God. Um, it could look very rebellious, what we think of when we think of rebellious. I mean, I'd say that religious version is very rebellious too. In fact, probably even more dangerous to you know, some degree. Um, but but we, can, we can have, you know, well, I'm just gonna go around, do whatever I want. Therefore, verse 11, God sends a strong delusion on them so that they may believe what is false. So uh, God continues to confirm them in that perhaps, right? That can be a judgment. I think you see that here, that, it, it, that God does that. Think of Pharaoh. There's a sense in which God does that as a judgment on Pharaoh. But who is, we also see in, in the situation with Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And we see that God hardens his heart. So there is a little bit of a mystery here. I mean, I understand that, but I don't think it's a mystery in the sense where it's like, well, we can't see anything at all. I think we see the reason that we're culpable is because we're doing what we most want to do. We have a love issue, disordered love. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the condemnation comes because we continue to reject God's truth. Like we see, in, we see that in Romans uh, 1 as well. And again, we're responsible because we had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
right? Pleasure is this idea of I'm doing what I want. You see what, you see, you see what I'm saying there? Um, so, uh, now c- contrast that with verses 13 through 17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. So now he's talking to these Christians in Thessalonica. Beloved by the Lord because God chose you. So we see God chooses them and he has set his love on them. They're beloved. Um, As the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. So they're set apart by the Spirit, to the Spirit and by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you, so we talked about irresistible calling, he calls you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, perseverance of the saints. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. That's, um, that's perseverance. The first part was preservation, this is perseverance, right? Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So we see God's salvation. You're chosen by love, by his love. Um, it comes through the Spirit setting you apart for belief in truth. Um, there's a gospel call that is effectual and there is preservation and perseverance that goes on. So if I was going to summarize some of this, all I would say is what you're seeing is there's an asymmetrical relationship between salvation and judgment. Um, I, I, in other words, I don't take the view that because God chooses those whom he's going to save, he's in the exact same way chosen for condemnation in a, hey, you're going to be condemned whether you like it or not way. Uh, I think there's an asymmetrical relationship. I think the relationship is if we're redeemed, yes, it's 100%. God gives us the life. We've seen that in other passages, John 3, other places like that. God has to regenerate the heart, Titus 3, 5. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you're saved alone. Even the faith is part of that grace we see. So I, I, think, I think we see that side. The other side, why are, are people condemned? It's because they loved unrighteousness. You see that in John 3, 16 and 17 and following, by the way, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then it goes on and talks about those who are being judged, and it says that the judgment is coming because they love darkness rather than the light. Again, there's a, I'm, I'm, I'm loving the darkness, so who's responsible? I have to be responsible. I, okay, I get, there's a little bit of mystery there. I get that. But the point is the Bible holds both those things forward. I, I am responsible in my rejection because I'm doing what I most want to do. That's why I'm responsible. Let's do Jim and then this one. What I'm thinking about is I'm, I finally came to the conclusion that our problem didn't begin, my problem didn't begin with my birth. Mm-hmm. Problem began way back with Adam, my father. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's where the problem began, and and that that condition entered our entire beings from Adam on down through us. No, we didn't choose to be born, but at the same time, you know, that condition, that rank thing, has been passed down for ages and ages right. and ages, and that is our condition. Yeah. And if God chooses to pull some out of that, rather than everybody go to hell, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, so Ro- yeah, Romans 5 is a good passage to kind of su- support what you're saying. So yeah, I think you're right. You, did you have something? Yeah, I, I think a lot of our problem with getting our heads around what the Bible's saying here comes from a misunderstanding of what the Bible means when it says just. Hmm. I mean, throughout the Bible it says God is just, but and we think of just as being fair. Hmm. In our secular judicial system, we think that justice is when the law treats everybody fairly, mm-hmm. treats everybody the same. But when the Bible says God is just, it's not speaking of justice from that point. It's speaking 
of justice from the standpoint of the creator. And no one would argue, no one reasonable would argue that that the creator does not have absolute rights over his creation. Mm -hmm. And so when you think of, oh, I'm God's creation, well, he has absolute rights over me. He can do whatever he wants, and that's just. Mm -hmm. And it would be unjust if I could do something opposed to what the creator wants to do with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Romans 9 is, I mean, you see Paul talking about um, answering the creator back. And again, we pointed this out. I mean, if we're rightly understanding these doctrines of God's election and all these other things, because that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8 and 9. Paul anticipates that some, or at least some, maybe even many, are going to have the question, is this fair? Right? So if, if we teach the doctrine of salvation in such a way that nobody ever asks, is that fair? We probably have not taught it biblically. Right? Uh, now, and then he goes on and answers it, and part of his answer is, God is God, and, and we're not. Um, but yeah, but I think other passages like this, they, they also show us God is, I mean, we're, we're doing what we most want to do. This is, not, this is not something where we can say, um, you know, I, I'm not culpable for, for my unbelief. I am culpable for it because I'm doing what I most want to do when I persist in that. Uh, salvation has got to be, on the asymmetrical side, has to be, therefore, 100% God, right? Um, so yes, I understand this is uh, complex, but hopefully that helps a little bit. Okay, yes. I've, I've never run across anybody in my life that, that has said to me, God's not being fair to me because he won't let me believe. Mm-hmm. I've only met resistance right. to or hatred for God or <coughs> yeah. God has a thing in my life. I never yeah. had a conversation. <coughs> I wish I yeah. So, yeah, so, and that brings us to another point. I think Doug was teaching on this last time, uh, was on evangelism and the sovereignty of God. So the biblical call is to share the gospel. I mean, we, we tell everyone, repent and believe. That's what we tell everybody. And it's a genuine offer. We're going to get to this maybe a little bit here in, we talk about the atonement, but I do think it's a genuine offer because um, the Bible does say, whoever believes will be saved. That's true, right? And so that's the call, repent and believe. And, um, and so we just, we tell people that. We're not, we're not going to pull back from telling people to repent and believe. Um, yeah, that's good. Okay. Um, would it be more correct to say God knows all things rather than determines all things that happens? And so uh, one example that we could look at, we're not going to turn there right now, but uh, 1 Samuel 23, that's where David is being pursued. Well, actually, he hears about some raid that happened, and he asks God, should I go to this city and defend them and fight against the Philistines? And God says, yes, I'll, you know, you're going to have victory if you go. And then we also see, um, then, he, then Saul hears about it. Saul's going to track down David and try to kill him. And so David inquires of the Lord, is Saul gonna, are these people in this city going to give me up to Saul? And the Lord says, yes, they will. And so, he, so David says, okay, I better leave. Okay? So the question is, is it, is it more correct really not to so much to say that God determines all things, but that he knows all things? And is that passage a, a evidence of that? Um, so I'm going to give two answers. One is a philosophical answer. We've kind of already done this, but um, I, I still think it's probably helpful to bring it up. I guess I'm saying the way I just answered the other questions maybe kind of points in this direction. Um, not that, that I'm being redundant. Um, too much, but maybe a little bit here. So I, I don't think you can say um, that it's just a matter of he knows all things and still maintain uh, what the Arminian side is trying to maintain in terms of freedom. For the Arminian side to work, you have to have a freedom that's a sense of libertarian freedom. I could choose A or B, and in the exact same circumstances, I, I, nothing changes. I could change, choose A or B at the moment of decision. 
And so in that lesson on determinism, I spent a while trying to talk about, I don't think that type of freedom actually exists. And I tried to show that philosophically and biblically. Um, but I, I, th I think it's still, a, it's, this is a good question because you come across patch like this and you want to understand how does it fit together. Um, so just real quick to rehash some of that, you know, if, if, so I guess what I'm saying is I don't think this works for the Arminian position either because if God is all-knowing, which the Arminian position is going to hold that too, unless you start moving into open theism, which again, that's something else. We start moving into non-orthodoxy at that point. Uh, if we're going to hold to God knows all things infallibly, in other words, he knows it and he knows it, rather than he's a good bookie. You know, he, he like, he's, it's, it's guesswork, but he's really good at what he does. Like, you know, he really has studied everything and, and he's really good. Okay, that is not orthodoxy when you start moving into God is the best bookie ever, right? Orthodoxy is God knows all things. So if you hold that view that God knows all things, when a person finally comes on the scene, do they actually have the ability to choose B over A if God knew that they would choose A instead of B? And here, here let me explain that. If God looked down and saw that you would believe, let's say, let's say he saw that, that's what happens. He looks down the quarter of time, he sees you're gonna believe, um, then he elects you, predestines you, you're going to be justified. Um, can you have libertarian freedom when you actually come on the scene? Right, you can't. Um, could you at the last moment decide, nope, not going to believe? You can't, because if God is omniscient, because uh, if, if, if you could, either God is, is A, he wasn't omniscient, you see what I'm saying? Or B, you actually did not have a libertarian version of freedom, which is why we talked about, I think the biblical version, I, I think you see this in places in scripture, at least inferences you can make from scripture, is a freedom of inclination. I am free to do what I most desire to do, right? So yes, in my fallen state, I love darkness, and I'm free when I'm choosing darkness, right? And if I'm gonna be saved, God has to give me a new heart that I am now inclined to want to obey him and trust him. Um, so, I, I think the libertarian freedom version is going to cause a problem for this. Second, biblically, um, we have to ask, again, why is it that God knows all things? And I think the answer is because he determines all things. And I kind of pointed that out in an earlier answer. Even in this first Samuel passage, verse uh, 23, um, I think I wrote verse 4 and 14 there, maybe. But there's this, I will give, I, I will give them into your hands, is what he says. And then and you get down to verse 14 and he's fleeing from Saul. Uh, it says, the Lord did not give David into Saul's hand. So I think God, God does this. Now, you, one, one interesting thing you do see there, though, is God uses means. And he's sovereign even over those means. David finds this information and David then does what David's going to do. It's not outside of God's sovereignty, but, but David makes choices and makes actions, doesn't he? And there's nothing in the passage where you read that and you say, well, clearly David was forced to do that. You know, he didn't really want to flee from Saul. He kind of wanted to stick around and test it out to see what happened. Uh, no, I mean, David's doing what he wants to do, and the Lord keeps Saul away from, from capturing him. So again, yes, there is, there is some mystery as to exactly how this fits together, but I don't think we just have to throw our hands up and say, well, there's no way to understand any of this. I guess that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to give you, I, I do think the Bible points us in these directions. Um, I don't think we can just say, well, we'll never know, therefore let's not even think about it. I think the Bible points us in these kind of doctrines of grace, God's sovereignty, God's determinism ways. Uh, not even points us in it. I think it says that in passages. Um, okay, so uh, let's see. Oh, Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 46, um, kind of running out of time, you probably need to move on, but Isaiah 46, 
says that God is declaring the end. Well, I'm, I'm God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Okay, so how can he declare these things? How can he see things before they come to pass? Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then verse 11, he gives the specific thing that he's gonna do in this circumstance, calling a bird of prey from the east. He's gonna rise, raise up a leader from the east who's gonna come uh, invade Israel. And then he says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So God knows all things. Um, so I, I don't think God's knowing all things replaces his determining of all things. That's what I'm saying. I think, I think the reason he knows all things is because he determines all things. I think those two things go together. I don't think there's actually a contradiction. I don't think it's an either or. I think they go together. Um, okay, questions about doc, uh, definite atonement. Um, we intentionally use the word definite here rather than limited. I do think limited can have um, misunderstandings that it's just uh, limited in the sense that it wasn't very powerful or um, it, can, it can probably say more than we want to say. I think there certainly are people that have held to some form of what we call the doctrines of grace or Calvinism they would have held to that would have um, um, ignored certain things that the Bible does say about the atonement, right? Uh, in other words, they get, you can get so zeroed in on Jesus came to die for his elect that you just kind of like it's out of bounds that there could be other things that were also happening, multiple intentions to what God had intended in the atonement. Um, so the, the question then, um, let me just real quick, just because not all of you have been here for all those lessons, atonement. What is the atonement? The atonement is the work of God in Christ on the cross whereby he canceled the debt of sin, of our sin, appeased his holy wrath against us, and won for us all the benefits of salvation. And then, uh, the fact that it's definite means when he died, he also purchased the faith of those who would believe. He purchased the, the salvation surely and certainly of the elect. Those who he died for will be saved. That's what we mean when we say when we add definite to the word atonement. Um, here, here's a quote that says that maybe in a better way. We simply say that in the cross, God had in view the actual redemption of his children. And we affirm that when Christ died for these, he did not just create the opportunity for them to, be, to save themselves, but really purchased for them all that was necessary to get them saved, including the grace of regeneration, so Titus 3.5, and the gift of faith, Ephesians 2. So um, <clears throat> that's in contrast to the view that would say he died to make salvation possible for all, but definite for no one. So salvation is possible for all, but there's no definite, I mean, theoretically, you could end up with no one being saved right? Because it's, it's available for all, but there's no definite group that's going to be saved. Now, I mean, I don't think Arminian, I'm not saying like the Arminian view is saying that no one is, I mean, obviously they believe they're saved and we're saved. We are brothers and sisters in the same church. We believe we're saved, right? So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I'm just trying to help you get your, what's the difference? The difference is either there's a definite group of people who we know are going to be saved or it's available to all and definite for no one, okay? I think that's, that's the, the difference. So um, the question then, um, Two questions. One was really um, this idea, you know, can we say that there's more that was done besides the definite salvation of God's elect? Um, so can we say there were multiple intentions in what he was doing? Can we say that when we read certain passages that tell us, you know, Jesus died for the world, that that, that could mean things like um, he, he died in such a way that uh, it makes it reality that whoever believes will be saved, right? Um, so there, there's, there's different um, intentions that could be brought into that. Um, and, and, and so part of that view, some people also will say, um, 
Can we also say that in the atonement, so read 1 John 2, 2 or other places, could we say that he's the propitiation of the whole world, and, and so that means he paid for the sins of the whole world. Even though you still could hold to the view that I'm saying and say, yes, but he, it's only definitely going to be applied to the people who he's elected. So there's different like nuances, which is why this is a really complex topic. Um, I mean, Doug has a book that I borrowed that's like this big, and it's just on the topic of the atonement and its extent and things like that, okay? Um, so people spend a lot of time thinking about this, right? So I'm not, um, I don't feel like I completely landed the plane on that, you know, where I'm at even on this. I, I will say, I do think multiple intentions is true. In other words, I, I, I think it is saying at least he died for his elect, I think there are more things God is accomplishing in the atonement than just that. I think he's probably adding uh, guilt and culpability to those who reject him because with the coming of Jesus, there is this, this gospel offer then that can go out to the whole world and as we continue to love darkness rather than light, it just adds to the fact that God is just and we are unjust and guilty. Because, Je- because why? Because he, God so loved the world, he sent his son to die. That's how much God loved the world, right? Um, so I think that, that's part of, of it. Um, there are other things too. Were you gonna say something? Yeah, um- it's also true that it's not only humanity that's being saved. Uh, that's another intention of the atonement, yes. Hierarchy of creation. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so in Colossians, other places, you talk about redemption, uh, like a cosmic redemption uh, of the creation itself. You see Romans uh, 8, 9, 8, um, where it talks about the creation is groaning, awaiting, awaiting this redemption. So that, I think that is another intention of the atonement. But that doesn't mean every single thing within it is going to be in that redeemed. Right, yes, yes. But his death is what's going to bring about the redemption of a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, right? All those things. Yes, I think so. Um, so um, let, let me. So one thing I do want to point out is what I was trying to say in that lesson on definite atonement was I was just, because I didn't have time to work out all those things and look at all those passages and we're still not really, but um, I just want to make this clear. What, one, all I was trying to make the case for was um, mere definite atonement. You know, C.S. Lewis has that book, Mere Christianity, and so it's kind of like, I'm going to make a mere, like, baseline, like, if these things are true, Christianity is true. Now, there's a bunch of other details we got to work out, but this is true, okay? So that's all I was trying to do, is make a mere case for definite atonement, and the only thing you have to prove to make that case is that at least one intention of the atonement is there's a definite group of people, specific individuals, whom when Jesus died, he guaranteed their salvation, all faith and everything, the whole new covenant promises for them. Which, by the way, the new covenant is one of the reasons I, I think we could prove that. Um, we don't have time to look at that, but on your handout, I put two passages you could look at related to that. John 10 is, one, is the one passage I took to, so let me just point this out in John 10. Uh, you can turn there if you'd like, but John 10. So John 10, verse 14 <clears throat> and 15. I think this shows us that there is guaranteed specific salvation for specific people as at least one intention of the atonement. John 10, 14 through 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, she- my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for who? For the sheep, right? So now we have to say, who are the sheep, right? Because th- these are the people he's gonna die for, atonement for these people, for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking to the Jews. And so what he's saying is there are Gentiles that are gonna be brought into this, Okay. Uh, I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So these sheep are going to be a people that will receive an effectual call. They will respond to his voice when he calls. 
Um, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. John 10, 22 through 25. At that time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? So these are the religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hands. So we start out by talking about the sheep. Those are the people he came for. And then we're talking about, we're seeing how belief ties into being a sheep, right? Sheep is someone who does believe. That's true, right? At this point, though, you could still say that doesn't necessarily prove definite atonement because let's just say anybody could believe. The problem you have is you run into grammar here because... You do not believe because this is the reason you do not believe. You are not of my sheep. You see that? The reason for the unbelief is because you're not of the sheep. It's not you're not of the sheep because you didn't believe. You can't switch the grammar around. So I think this passage proves mere limited atone- or definite atonement. Um, I think there are other places we could go that would point us in that direction too. Now, did he do more than that? Sure. I I think certainly we could say he did more than that. There are passages, and this was the other thing. um, You know, how do we deal with other passages like 1 Timothy 4.10? For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Okay, all Orthodox Christians would agree this is not referring to universalism. It doesn't mean he's the savior in the sense that everybody is saved. We know that, right? Um, I do think there are different ways we could interpret this passage. Universalism is not one of them. Um, so we could say he died, um, there's a sense in which he died for unbelievers, um, and there's a special sense in which he died for believers. I think that, that can be true, right? It gets complex working out what those, what those intentions are, how that works out. Um, another option is we could say, well, it's not saying that he ultimately actually paid the price for these unbelievers, but that he in fact is the only, um, hope of salvation. In fact, he is the only savior of all people. In other words, if you're going to come to God, it's going to have to be through Jesus. Um, and it's all sorts of people, Jew, Gentile. It's not all um, uh, without exception. It's all without um, distinction. Jew, Gentile, right? It could be any of those sorts. Um, now, I'm not, that's not a hill I'm going to die on one interpretation or the other. I think it could, it could be either of those. Um, Bruce Ware uh, holds uh, a multiple intention view where he, I think, does argue that Jesus' death... Um, based on this passage in, in 1 John 2, 2, um, that Jesus' death actually does make the payment, the propitiation for their sins, but it doesn't get applied because of their unbelief, right? That could be true. Um, I, I have a little bit of a philosophical hang-up with that. I don't want philosophy, though, to be what stops me from holding a view, right? I want to be convinced biblically. Um, but I do have a little bit of a question about how that works with, um, is, it, is it then just for God to... Uh, judge individuals whom the payment has already been made for through Christ. Um, I think there's probably answers to that. Um, so I'm not, I'm not at a point. So anyway, again, there's a book this big on the issue of atonement. So um, I think that requires more research. I'm not saying, hey, let's throw our hands up in the air and say we don't know. Uh, I'm just I'm probably taking you as far as I can go at this point um, without me reading more and thinking more and studying passages more in depth. So there you go. I don't know all the answers, but yeah. All right, really fast. Sacrifice that is constantly, eternally existing alive and perfect, blameless sacrifice. If 
capable of paying for it. Mm. And so you have to answer that along. I mean, as we all consider. Yeah, yeah. So you're, 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 saying, you're saying Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely valuable. Is that what you're so You have to, yeah. Yes. I'm just saying you have to answer that question along with that question as well with the intention. Yeah. Because, like, you know, would you accidentally end up limiting sure. what he did? Yes. Like, what would it not satisfy? Right, right. Exactly. Yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I would say, I would say it is infinitely valuable. His sacrifice is infinitely valuable, and it is, it is sufficient for all. Right, but it's not necessarily applied to all, and and really, in, in a sense, you know, both sides actually are saying kind of the same thing on that, aren't we? Because the Armenians aren't saying, well, it's 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 sufficient for all, it's valuable enough for all, therefore everyone ends up in heaven. They're not saying that either. Uh, so it is interesting, you know, when you actually really think about these. In the end, practically, we end up saying a lot of the same things, right? Um, even though the doctrine might be a little bit different, and it is a big deal. I mean, we do want to really get. I'm not saying so. Therefore, just say whatever. I'm just saying, I think this is why we can still have unity as a church, even if we're still not all convinced exactly the same way, and we're still sorting out these things. But I would say, brothers and sisters, let's keep sorting it out, okay? I've seen enough in the scripture that I'm convinced the doctrines of grace are the right understanding of scripture. I still think that if you, if you're not there and you see it differently, I don't think that makes you less of a Christian or anything like that, because I, I mean, and I certainly could be wrong, right? So I'm humble enough to say we're still in the same body of believers, right? Um, now, if I start going off into saying, therefore, who, we don't evangelize, well, you ought to rebuke me, right? And if you start going off and saying, well, well therefore, you know, God can't really know everything exhaustively, I ought to rebuke you, right? So there's certainly slippery slopes. We have to be aware of that, but we can also love each other and still differ on these issues, right? Okay, you can say something? Yeah. Is it Arminian to say that Christ died in his payment for their sins, even though they go to hell. So someone in hell has had their sins paid for, mm-hmm. and they're in hell. Is that possible? Right. So the Armenian position, yeah. So I, um, I do think the Armenian position is arguing that he, he satisfied God's wrath for everyone, though not everyone's going to experience it, that salvation, right. So again, yeah, I understand that. I think that is a philosophical question that we have, and there probably are scriptures that give us and point us in different ways. So that's why I'm saying we keep going to scripture to look for it. Don't just throw your hands up and say impossible. But I don't want, if, if my only answer is a philosophical objection, and I see something in scripture that, that would contradict that, I want to go with scripture. And so what I'm saying is there are passages like 1 John 2, 2, right? Um, he's a propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We want to make sure we understand that rightly. Now, looking at the context of that passage, he's just gotten done dealing with a group of people that, um, verse 8, they think they're cut above everyone else. They think they don't have any sin. Verse 10 of chapter 1, we need to agree with God and say we're sinners. Chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is the only salvation. He's the advocate we need. Then he says this in verse 2. So what does that mean when he says that in verse 2? Well, I I think it means, uh, contra the false teachers, Jesus is the only Savior, and he saves all sorts of people. If anyone's going to come to him, Jew, Gentile, whatever, it's going to have to be through Jesus. I think the context can still point us in that narrower understanding. But I think you can hold a, a, a little bit broader view, kind of like Bruce Ware, and still basically hold the doctrines of grace. Uh, you just be a little bit different on that one point, but it still would fit within that. Um, and another reason that First John 2, 2 passage, I don't have time to go into this now, but John eleven fifty one through 52 um, has very parallel language, and it's the same author. John talks about... Um, they prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not, on, and not for the nation only, but also 
to gather one into one all the children of God who are scattered abroad. 1 John 2, 2 says he's the propitiation not for ours only, so that's parallel to not for the nation only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So sins of the whole world, if it's parallel to this children of God who are scattered abroad in John 11, um, seems to have a definite group of people in mind still. Um, so I've, that's as far as I can take you. I need to do more thinking on um, definite atonement for sure. I haven't landed the plane all the way, but we probably do need to wrap it up. So if you have more questions, um, two weeks from now, we'll hope to answer more. And there are some more we already have on deck. In fact, we probably have enough to make a whole class um, just because we like to try to give thorough answers. But if you have more, you can certainly send those in. And um, yeah, anyway, let me pray for us. God, thank you for uh, this time. I know we covered a lot. Um, perhaps our heads are spinning. Um, but God, we do uh, ultimately, God, our goal is we, we want to make much of you. Uh, we want to understand your word. We want to... Um, follow it, even where we have trouble fully grasping different pieces of it or um, perhaps find ourselves even resistant to it. We want to follow where you lead. We want to follow where your word clearly directs us. Um, And ultimately, God, we want to glorify you. We want to think big thoughts of you, not because we need to make you big, but because you are big. And we want to think about you for who you are. We want to find joy uh, overflowing as we know more of your greatness, your infinite power and might and wisdom and knowledge and strength and grace. And so we pray as we go to worship you that we would uh, worship you with hearts that are full of joy for the salvation you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.